The year was 1793. The fruit of Enlightenment thought had already produced a successful revolution in the formerly British colonies of America. In comparison to what was happening now in France, the American Revolution had been fairly tame. Those revolutionaries had retained the bits of Enlightenment thought that were still open to traditional religious notions about God, albeit with a growing bent towards natural theology over revealed theology, reason over special revelation. But nonetheless, this new nation, which claimed to be conceived in liberty, was still very religious. The French Revolution, however, became violently opposed to organized religion. To combat what many of these revolutionaries felt was an unholy matrimony between the powers of the state and the powers of the institutional Catholic Church, a new official religion of France was created called the Cult of Reason, the first ever state-sponsored atheistic religion in human history. In 1793, members of the Cult of Reason marched into the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris and ransacked the historic church, converted it into what they called the Temple of Reason. Upon doing that, they attempted to institute a new civic religious holiday called the Festival of Reason. This was just one significant example of a longer process of a strategy we could call de-Christianization that happened in France during the French Revolution. During this de-Christianization process, revolutionaries aimed at the transformation of France and the transformation of what we could call the French spirit, using our terminology from our Christ and culture and battle of the gods series. Remember, the spirit is that domain of highest values, the invisible transcendent values of a people group, a culture. It's their guiding story, right? So during this de-Christianization process, the revolutionaries aimed their sights at transforming the spirit of France and the spirit of French culture. And to do so, they set their aims on the destruction of aesthetic symbols that they saw as part of the old institutional religious guard. And this makes so much sense when we have this understanding of cultural theology. If you remember back even my conversation with Dr. Dwight Hopkins, this this tripartite system of understanding culture as a spirit, aesthetic, and labor. And so these revolutionaries during the French Revolution understood the connection between aesthetic symbols and the spirit of a culture. So in order to change the spirit, to change the, the guiding story, the deep values, the, the invisible transcendent notions, they understood they had to change and transform the visible aesthetic symbols of that spirit. So that's what they set themselves out to do. They destroyed statues of saints, crosses, and church bells, understanding the formative power of not only these aesthetic symbols, but also even the liturgical practices of how we mark time and, and how we even tell stories in our calendar, which isn't something we've unpacked a whole bunch in this podcast, but 
This is another significant way that we are shaped and formed to follow particular stories, even how we mark time and the use of our calendar, the celebration of holidays. And they understood this. The revolutionaries understood this in France. The first French Republic attempted to even create a brand new calendar system, where instead of the typical seven-day week seen as part of a sort of biblical paradigm, the revolutionaries changed it to a 10-day week. Days that were once celebrated for particular saints or traditional Christian holy days, uh, aka holidays, like Christmas, for example, were replaced with celebrations of plant and animal life, very in keeping again with this cult of reason and an overemphasis on natural theology. The French poet D'Anglatine gives us insights into what drove these changes among the revolutionaries. He claimed that instead of celebrating a, quote, canonized mob, end quote, that instead the days and seasons should be marked by, quote, objects that make up the true riches of the nation, not from a cult, but from agriculture, useful products of the soil, the tools that we use to cultivate it, and the domestic animals are faithful servants in these works, end quote. So the celebration of the birth of Christ, for example, on December 25th was replaced by a celebration of dogs. Throughout human history, especially since the advancement of mass communication beginning with the printing press in Europe in 1440, it has been theology, philosophy, and the pursuit of meaning which has been the primary determinant of revolution. I want to welcome everyone to today's episode. My name's Paul Anleitner, and uh, I want to thank you for listening in to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. We've been in a series, an on and off again series throughout much of the last year, or even over a year, exploring the problem of evil. And today's episode is a bit of a detour. It's a detour that actually came up as I've been kind of doing my reading and due diligence uh, as I've been prepping for uh, future episodes in that series. And we've been in over the last two episodes prior to this, the last two episodes in the Problem of Evil series, we've been in the Enlightenment era in European history, seeing how different theologians, philosophers, those who have given themselves to the pursuit of meaning and to, um, to, to our deepest ideas about that, people like Gottfried Leibniz and Immanuel Kant over the past two episodes, we've been trying to see how they've addressed the problem of evil. But as I've been kind of in this, you know, enlightenment world, I was really, really fascinated by what happened in the French and American Revolution and, and this really transformative process that I think has been happening throughout much, if not most of human history, but especially in the modern era, especially since the advent of mass communication, which... I know there has been the movable type printing press going all the way back to uh, much earlier times in, uh, in, in ancient China, for example. So I, I'm not trying to reflect some sort of just European bias, but because we've been immersed really in 
uh, Western thought as people living in the West, that has been the domain I've been focusing on, especially as we've been going through Christian history. And yes, there is Christian history in places like China, but it emerges much later in the process. So I just bring that up to say, I know that there was a movable type printing press or earlier versions of it elsewhere in the world, but the advent of mass communication in Europe really begins in 1440 with Johann Gutenberg's development of the movable type printing press. And what that did was it allowed there to be in a much quicker uh, time uh, timetable and, and, uh, and an ability to mass produce uh, works of literature, pamphlets, books. And with that came uh, greater access greater access to knowledge, knowledge that didn't have to be directly mediated by institutions. And this is a really big deal for us to understand how transformative this is on human history. And in particular, what I really want to unpack in today's episode, which I wrote a bit about on my Patreon page last week, was to see how the dissemination of information through these revolutionary methods of communication really makes the deep ideas that we find in the disciplines of theology and philosophy and, you know, and all of these meaning-making endeavors. And I think sometimes, just as a side note, I think sometimes the line between what's theology and what's philosophy is very, very blurred. I think that's why I've typically gone with, even though it's not uh, as popular of a phrase, it's, a, it's one that I encountered in uh, grad school, this, this idea of meaning-making as a, as a all-encompassing term to describe the process we go through as we try to find meaning in the world and to answer our deepest questions, questions that come up in theology, philosophy, psychology, science, history, humanities. So, what has happened in the advent of mass communication, starting with in European history and in the history of the West, with the movable type printing press in 1440, created a transformative process in human history, and it brewed all sorts of revolutions. I want to talk about this today because I, I suspect and maybe concerned even might be a more accurate word to describe my frame of mind right now. I think we're in the middle of a revolutionary era in Western history. I think we're in the middle of something that's something that's actually a global phenomenon too. But in particular, speaking as someone living in America, I really am sensing this revolutionary shift happening. And it, to me, it's no coincidence that this shift is coming on the heels of a shift in mass communication, similar to what we experienced in the precursor to the Enlightenment, in the precursor to the Protestant Reformation. Before all of that, there was the, the change in methods and availability to methods of communication which increased access and availability to ideas, knowledge, to different spirits, 
So the movable type printing press in 1440, it's interesting to me, this happens as a necessary precursor to the Protestant Reformation. My, my undergrad's in history. And I think if you were to talk to any historian and say, hey, would the Protestant Reformation have been possible without there being the ability for um, even things like the, the, the translation of the Bible to happen in people's native tongues, and for that to be disseminated easily throughout Europe, would you have the Protestant Reformation? If the work of Martin Luther couldn't be easily disseminated and printed throughout Germany, would you have had the Protestant Reformation? And I think any historian would say the answer is no. Whether we are consciously aware of it or not, our behaviors and practices descend from our aims and goals in life. Our aims and our goals descend from our values. Our values descend from a guiding story we believe about reality, and our guiding story descends from the God or gods we believe has ultimate value and writes the guiding story. So when we get into that domain, if we were to structure this in a sort of pyramid-like hierarchy of values, the hierarchy of meaning in our guiding story, We would put at the bottom our practices and behaviors, and just above that, the aims and goals we have in life, whether we are consciously aware of these goals or not. The behaviors and practices of our life are aimed in a particular direction. They have outcomes. So we act in a particular way in the world. It is aimed in a particular direction, whether we are consciously aware of it or not. And, you know, part of the, to to take a phrase uh, from Socrates, the the part of the examined life that we need to wrestle with is whether or not our behaviors and practices are really aimed where we want them to go. So just above that, we have have got our behaviors and practices. Above that, we have our aims. The behaviors and practices are aimed in a particular direction. The aims and the goals, though, just above that, they are directed towards values, values like maybe truth or beauty or, you know, I know for me, one of my personal values that I, I, I see descending from my reading of scripture is something like resiliency, the necessity for, for us to have a value for resiliency in the face of evil and suffering. So that's an example of a value that for me descends from a guiding story that I believe about reality that the values come, our values come from a guiding story. Our guiding story is ultimately shaped by the God or, to be frank, the gods we worship that we believe have ultimate value, but that we believe writes the guiding story. So as a Christian, uh, as, a, as someone trying to follow the way of Jesus, I have these values that descend from a story, and they are a story I believe to be true. And I believe the author of that story is God. And in particular, it is in the way of Jesus that I find the truth about that story. All right? So my, the goal in my life is to make sure that, I, um, that in the process of continual transformation and sanctification, that my behaviors and practices are being shaped more and more by the way in the story of Jesus. So hopefully that makes sense. This is, these are concepts we've talked about in the past quite a bit, but I want to highlight them to highlight how deeply revolutionary 
the study of theology and philosophy and serious effort in our meaning-making process, how revolutionary these practices, this, this, these disciplines are to human history, not only to our own lives as individuals, but how transformative they are. And I think we are going through a period in time in which there really is a battle of the gods taking place, a cultural battle taking place, a battle that is shaping and reshaping culturally endowed guiding stories. I think a basic survey, like we could go through, especially in modern history, let's say we could go back, let's just even go back to 1440, the advent of the movable type printing press, because I think this is where we see the ability for ideas to be spread much more quickly. Of course, nowhere near as quick as what we have today with the, with the internet and social media. But if we go back and we, we go throughout history, we can see that history shows us that theology and all of our meaning-making enterprises are the most important determinants in human history. So here is how this process has typically gone over the past 500 years. So if you were to survey the past 500 years of human history, I think this is what you would see. And this is not a phenomenon that's exclusive just to the West. You can see this in Russian history. If you want, don't want to include Russia in the West, Russia is kind of their own thing. You can see this in, in China, in Japan, uh, wherever you want to go in the world over the past 500 years where communication has made the dissemination of ideas more possible, I think you can see this pattern. Let's unpack the, the steps, the historical transformative process that we can say can be broken down into seven steps. All right, so step one here. Step one, the theologian or the philosopher comes up with a new idea. They communicate an idea. And, and throughout history, there have been these revolutionary idea disseminators. They have been the ones through their, their gifts of communication or their just ability to tap into this, this domain of spirit and to maybe peel back the veil and to see beyond some of the, the limitations of cultural biases. And they, they grab this truth that seems to be from the future, from another realm. <laughs> you know, it seems to be so far beyond where the spirit is in that snapshot of time for their culture. And they grab this idea or they communicate it in a new way. You know, and sometimes these ideas are, are, are important truths. They're insights into beauty or goodness. And then sometimes there are people, there are philosophers, there are theologians, there are ideas, idea hunters that grab onto things that I think we would say, I would say I disagree with. They aren't true, but they are yet still revolutionary. All right. So the first step, the theologian, the philosopher, the, the idea hunter hunts down an idea and they communicate it. They write a book, a pamphlet, they give a lecture. Uh, in today's 
means of communication. They record a podcast or a YouTube video. And this gets to our second step. So the first step, the theologian, it starts with the theologian. It starts with the philosopher. It starts with the idea hunter. It starts with the one seeking meaning. The second step is institutions and cultural media transmit those ideas. So it's hard for a theologian or philosopher for their ideas to have transformative impact if they're not, say, a professor in an institution that disseminates their wisdom in that institution, a teacher. Uh, it's hard for this to happen without the, the transmission of ideas through cultural media. And this is why the, the advent of the printing press was so revolutionary, is that you can transmit more, further, deeper to more people with that. And now, of course, in the age of the internet and social media, that is an exponentially much larger and quicker um, method of communication. So a theologian, a philosopher, they get an idea, they communicate an idea. That idea then is transmitted in institutions, let's say a university, let's say on a podcast, uh, a television program. It doesn't even necessarily need to be their idea uh, them individually, right? And this is, this is the important distinction. The philosopher, the theologian, they come up with the idea, but those ideas, the, the ones that are really revolutionary, there are people in institutions that might not have any personal relationship. They've just read that work and they go, wow, this is a transformative idea. I'm going to put this into my curriculum. I'm going to put this into my, my, my lectures. I'm going to, we're going to build this into my class or cultural media, whether it's like, you know, in a podcast, like what you're listening to now, or even in that more aesthetic media, like film and music. And we've talked about this numerous times that those are one of the primary vehicles in our culture today for new ideas to be transmitted. I just did a video a couple of weeks ago on uh, Zack Snyder's Batman v Superman, a very divisive comic book movie. And there is a um, quite a buzz about Zack Snyder's uh, cut of Justice League coming in 2021 to HBO Max. It was uh, something that had never really been finished. There were some issues where, you know, studio interference at, at Warner Brothers and meddling with what he wanted to do. And in the middle of his work, his daughter had committed suicide and he stepped down from the film. And so then what had got put out in the theater wasn't actually what he created. And then there was this afterwards, this incredible surge of support from the very get-go for people going, hey, we want to see what this guy had to say. What were his ideas? And this hashtag, you know, release the Snyder Cut went viral. And it's gotten to the point where execs listened and they said, hey, we're going to give this guy an opportunity to finish what he wanted to say. But as I put, um, you know, hopefully communicated clearly in that YouTube video, you can check that out on my YouTube channel. Zack Snyder was telling a deeply theological and philosophical story within something that seems like this is just a, a, block, a summer blockbuster popcorn flick. So cultural media transmits ideas, ideas that come from the, the idea hunters, the, the theologian, the philosopher. The third step, 
as institutions and cultural media, as you sit in a college classroom, as you sit in a church, as you consume hours of Netflix or you listen to podcasts, the third step is ideas then are assimilated into the cultural consciousness. It can be really subtle. You know, some of these ideas, I've noticed them in, um, I think, you know, especially in Disney-owned properties over the past few years. Um, here's two examples which might seem unrelated, but I think they are. Um, Frozen 2. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm going to, I have a daughter. I have a, a soon-to-be 10-year-old daughter. And of course, opening night or close to opening night of Frozen 2, we went to go see it in the theater. And I was so amazed by the ideas that were communicated in this movie. And I think one of the main ideas that we see in movies, not just like in Frozen, but in a lot of Disney-owned properties, is kind of uh, the more progressive, woke notions of the past is filled with more villains than heroes. It is an attempt to challenge a certain cultural guiding story in America's culture, to challenge the American guiding story, which says our, our past was full of heroes that did what was right and true and Christian. And what you saw in like Frozen 2 was the message was, uh, whatever her name was, the, the gals, the daughters, <laughs> I, don't, uh, I, I don't know the characters' names. Um, they they find out that, you know, their grandfather was essentially a colonizer that was oppressing native peoples. And I, I think there's probably, there's a lot of truth to even in these woke movements to expose things about our past, which are probably idols. So I'm not trying to dismiss that, but I'm just bringing it up as an idea that or as an example of how these ideas are assimilated into cultural consciousness. So you go through Frozen 2 and you take that message and maybe even as a young girl like my daughter's age, you're thinking about the history and your past and you're going, oh, I wonder something as simple as, oh, I wonder if my grandparents were bad too. That's an idea that gets assimilated into consciousness. You saw it in um, another example of this, almost identical. Uh, I think I watched these in a similar timetable, maybe it was within a couple of weeks, so I, I really noticed these ideas together, was in um, Thor Ragnarok. That's like, I think, the third Thor movie. Really funny, really, I mean, I enjoyed, really enjoyed the movie. It was, it was good entertainment. But another huge message embedded into that movie was that the, the stories of Asgard, their myths, were lies, were built on lies. They had actually covered up. You, there's actually a scene in which there's a, a mural on the ceiling of some temple in Asgard. Maybe you remember this scene. And as Thor's sister, I forget her name, as she shows up on the scene, um, she reveals to, uh, gosh, boy, I'm just terrible with characters' names. <laughs> the guy that Carl Urban plays in the movie, she reveals to him that underneath that mural is the actual true story of how Odin came to, you know, came to his power. It was not, not through the story he had learned and that Asgard had told 
but it was through uh, violence and corruption and, you know, they had learned the wrong story. And this is something that is, we just assimilate into our cultural consciousness and it causes us to think about our own past, right? And what happens in that, that film, right? Uh, Asgard actually needs to be destroyed and the people, the people actually jump onto a, a ship at the end of the movie and there's this notion that they, the people, are Asgard even as the old structure is being destroyed. That's a, that's a big idea packaged into another popcorn movie. And this is how these sorts of ideas are assimilated into cultural consciousness. And we aren't even fully aware of it, that we are assimilating these stories. I'm not saying all of that is wrong or bad, but I'm just saying that is a very clear, distinct idea that's growing in popularity in our culture. And there's a lot of truth to it, but there's also a question in my mind when I see those things of going, okay, what what's the better guiding story that you're aiming people towards? And, and that for me is the question, the question of our culture. All right, step four. So first step, theologian, philosopher communicates ideas. Second step, institution and cultural media transmit ideas. Third step, those ideas are assimilated into cultural consciousness. Fourth step, radical ideas that contradict prior guiding stories compete in a marketplace of ideas. So you take, um, we'll stay with pop culture film stuff, right? You come out of a movie like uh, another, you know, Disney-owned property now in Lucasfilm. You came, come out of a movie like The Last Jedi. And, and what was, you know, one of the main cultural or one of the main thematic ideas in that movie, we'll let the past die, bury it, kill it. You know, you even hear Kylo Ren say that. Luke Skywalker is reflecting on his failures in the past, that he's made mistakes, that the Jedi were broken. It's, it's the same idea, right? But you emerge from that, and a lot of people came out, people that were big Star Wars fans. And I'm sorry I'm using all these pop culture examples for some of you that don't care about pop culture stuff, but I think they're hopefully the most accessible examples. A lot of people came out of seeing that and they went, wait a second, I, I'm smelling something here. <laughs> a lot of people sniffed out what they thought was a theological and philosophical agenda in that movie because it seemed so contradictory to what people who really deeply loved Star Wars and the Star Wars meta-narrative and this, the guiding story that they felt that this, this series had told in the past, they felt like this was a challenge to that guiding story. And so what happens is you have this clash between, you can even see it in something as simple as the, the differences between the, the reviewers the professional critics, the reviewers that might be in sort of the intelligentsia class, and the people, the common average moviegoer, the, the nerdy Star Wars fan like myself, who came out of that and they went, whoa, hang on a second. That, that's a different guiding story. And so now the ideas that are contradicting prior guiding stories, there can be a competition in a marketplace 
of ideas, a competition to see what guiding story is going to be the new one that I adapt and assimilate as my own guiding story, which brings us to the fifth step. When there's this awareness that there are competing guiding stories happening in the marketplace of ideas, either the fifth step is either a path to synthesis happens. So a path happens, becomes available where people figure out, okay, there's some truth here. And we're going to synthesize some of this guiding story with our old ideas. So there's a synthesis between old ideas and new ideas. And what happens in that synthesis is a relatively peaceful uh, creation of a new and adapted, maybe we should say not new, but an adapted or updated guiding story. It's like getting a software update. Uh, you know, it's not, not a brand new app, a brand new operating system on your computer, but it's an adapted and updated one. So maybe one path when you, the exposure happens where you see, oh, okay, there's some differences in these guiding stories. There's some difference in the theology, the philosophy. There's some difference in the values that's being communicated. Is either a path towards synthesis emerges and you get an updated, adapted guiding story where the, there is usually like the dominant guiding story and perhaps the dominant guiding story gets updated with a, a new patch that, that changes and tweaks some things about the guiding story. Or this is the sixth step is either that happens or step six in this process, competing stories are recognized as just being too divergent and a violent struggle or a culture war ensues where there is a competition for story dominance. Let's think back to the French Revolution that we started, the, that example we started with at the beginning. What happened, right? Theologians, philosophers, people like Locke, Montesquieu, Rousseau, Voltaire, um, there are these philosophers that communicate ideas. Then you have the institutions and cultural media transmit those ideas. More and more people get them. The ideas are then assimilated into cultural consciousness in France. And then there's the realization that these ideas are in perhaps competition can we synthesize these with the prior guiding story, the guiding story that we've had as a people? The people, enough people, a massive amount of people numerically, I should say, and a vast number of people, especially in the lower class go, nope, no synthesis is possible. So they move to step six, which is we are going to engage in culture war, and if the ideological struggle does not lead to peaceable change, then we are going to have violent struggle for a new story, for story dominance. And that's what happened in the French Revolution, which leads us to the seventh step. Political revolution, civil war, legislation changes, geopolitical power shifts, all of that, etc., occur. So when the com competition for story dominance leads to the realization that these the, the, to the prior guiding story, the spirit can't coexist with this new guiding story. When there reaches a, a critical mass, then revolutions happen, civil wars happen. You know, maybe on a less violent and revolutionary scale, legislation changes can happen. But there are significant revolutions that occur as a result 
of a new story emerging, competing for story dominance in a culture, and the old guard and the new way clash. So in the French Revolution, it was out with the Catholic Church, out with that guiding story, the story of, that we tell even in our celebration of holidays and our calendar system where we denote specific days to saints and to the, to the story of the Christian story. It's going to be out with that and in with a new guiding story. And that's an example of a very radical revolution that happened. But it's not just limited to the French Revolution. Obviously, we don't have a United States of America without separatist pilgrims that came over to North America, fleeing and advocating for um, religious liberties. So that became a significant part of American DNA. You don't have the United States without even Descartes, Rene Descartes, who wasn't really a political philosopher in the same way that someone like Montesquieu was. But without Rene Descartes, you don't get this sense of the individual, that the individual, I think, therefore I am. You don't break away from collectivist ideas and don't get necessarily the emphasis on the value of the individual and the individual's thoughts and free speech without Descartes. You have guys like John Locke. So you just don't have, there is no United States of America without theological, philosophical shifts that impact and eventually transform cultural consciousness. It just doesn't happen. There's no French Revolution without many of the same Enlightenment influences. There's no Soviet Union without Marx or Lenin. You don't, Russia does not un, undergo in the, the um, 20th century this radical revolution. There's no Bolshevik revolution. There's none of that without the ideas that emerge in Marx and Lenin and without the means of communication for the dissemination of those ideas. You know, Marx said, Marx believed that it was economic forces that were the primary determinants in human history. And, you know, I, I think he's wrong. <laughs> I think it's people's quest for meaning. And when they experience a lack of meaning and they, they look at the world and they see a world that is, from their vantage point, uh, unjust, um, when they don't have what they feel like they need, I think Marx is right in the sense that revolutions happen and change happens when um, there are people that feel as if they don't have what they need and they're being treated unjustly. But that's part of a that's part of a larger and deeper, more innate quest for meaning as humans are meaning-making creatures. There's no Soviet Union without Marx or Lenin. There is no Nazism, sadly, without Martin Luther, even. I hate to even have to bring this up, but this is important. We, we can't wash away for those that are listening, that are Lutherans, those that, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful for much of what happened, not all, but much of what happened in the Protestant Reformation. But you don't have Nazism without Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote some really, really damaging um, works later in his life, such as Against the Jews and Their Lies. If you're not familiar with this, just, I mean, even doing a simple Google search for Martin Luther anti-Semitism will yield some very sad results. 
that Luther laid out how he felt Jews, and, and that for Luther was probably religiously motivated, how Jews that did not accept Jesus as the Messiah should be treated in Germany. You can find, uh, and I posted this in my, um, my blog post last week on my Patreon page, you can find uh, posters that were part of Nazi propaganda with Martin Luther on them with swastikas, you know, <laughs> claiming that uh, Luther is the, one of the forefathers of the Nazi movement. And he's just one, but there's a, you know, he's a big one that we have to acknowledge. You don't have Nazism without Luther. You don't have Nazism without Nietzsche or Heidegger. And I think one day people will look back and they will go, you don't have this, whatever the movement or change or revolution is called in the future, without this person, this idea. I think we're living through the beginnings of a revolution right now. I think all of us, if we spend any time watching the news, social media, and we are tuned into this reality as we see radical changes in aesthetic, in labor, and how people treat each other, in the dialogues that we're having, in people's behaviors and practices, we can discern that behind those things, there are theological and philosophical changes. There are meaning-making narrative changes. There are guiding story wars that are happening. I think we are living through a historically important era of competing guiding stories. My concern, and this is what drives me to do what I do with my life, is my concern is that most people have such little training in theology or philosophy that they will just mindlessly assimilate new guiding stories via cultural media and they will be transformed by it without any thought, without any critical reflection, without any ability to discern that they are being changed in the process. There's the old adage of the boiling frog. Maybe you guys are familiar with this, pa uh, this, this fable, we could call it. Um, you know, if you put a frog into a pot of boiling water, it's going to jump out right away. But if you put the frog into lukewarm room temperature water and you slowly bring it to boil, it doesn't notice that it's being boiled. I'm concerned that we have so little training in ideas that we, we can't pick up. We can't, we, we're unaware. So many people are unaware that they are being boiled in the pot like the frog. Many people have heard these things, even in our churches, sadly, that engaging in theology or philosophy is just, you know, some abstract academic endeavor, doesn't have any bearing on their quote, square, air quotes, scare quotes, real life. And this is nonsense because many people, because of that idea, they can't discern the theology embedded in cultural media. They can't pick up on this. They don't know that theology is everywhere, that competing guiding stories are happening all around them all the time. And this idea that, well, you know what, we just, we just can't, I, I just don't want to give my attention and energy to that. 
it, part of that is a problem on people in academia in these disciplines for not being able to communicate how important this is to not being able to actually communicate it in language that people can understand and discern. I understand, I pick up on that, but there has been this sort of anti-intellectualism that's in the church. And I am concerned about it because I am concerned that this idea that, you know, all, all, all we need is, it's, it sounds you know, nice and very wonderful and very religious that, boy, all we need is just to read our Bibles, is it's hogwash. <laughs> because when you read your Bible, you are bringing with that reading all of the, the, the guiding stories that you're being conditioned to believe throughout the week. And some of these are good. Some of these are not good. But the point is, the idea that we just simply you just pick up our Bible and we start reading it and it's going to transform our lives in and of ourselves is insane. It's totally, completely false because you already have a lens in which you're going to read that thing. And so if we don't begin to critically assess and train people how to better engage with their culture to try to understand how aesthetic is transforming cultural aesthetics and media is transforming their guiding story and feeding them a story about reality. If we don't begin to do that, well, I think we're seeing the effects of it right now. I know people being duped by this QAnon cult. I know people being duped into the woke cult. These are, both of these have, even in within these cultish movements, there are glimmers of the truth. For the QAnon people, they're deeply suspicious of how powerful people are attempting to manipulate them and trying to hurt people and trying to take advantage of children. That, I mean, that might be, those are very real concerns. On the other side, there are very real concerns in the sort of woke cult, which it does become a cult like you just can't read or see the world any other way through this lens. There are real glimmers of the truth in there. People concerned, similar to the QAnon cult, with power and unjust power structures and the manipulation of innocent, vulnerable people through narratives that mask plays for power. I get it. I get that stuff. I can, I understand why there are people in my generation that are so attracted to Marxism, to Marxist ideologies. I, I get that stuff. I understand why it's happening. And a significant reason why it's happening is because these ideas are culturally communicated through mass media and people have not done the process of going through and doing the due diligence necessary to be able to sniff those things out when they smell them. And it doesn't make it like instantly bad or good. The point is, can you sniff it out and smell it so that you can critically assess it and not just mindlessly assimilate it, whatever the claim to reality may be? Is a generation of people raised on ideas that you see and assimilate in Frozen 2 and Thor Ragnarok and The Last Jedi, more likely to just go out and tear down statues of Christopher Columbus? Yes, I think so. Now, might there be good reason to tear down a statue of Christopher Columbus? Does it represent some bad ideas? That could be. 
But the point that I'm most concerned about is the mindless participation in it, the mindless assimilation of a guiding story. Now, to some degree, I think Christians, especially in evangelical settings of the past generation, they recognized the shift that was happening. They recognized that there was a stories war, a battle of the gods happening. They saw the shift in ideas, they saw the shift in values, and they said, whoa, we got a serious struggle on our hands. And to a degree, I think they were right. I think where that past generation went wrong was in their Christ against culture attitude and in the strategy of culture war. So in the past generation, not everybody, but I'm I'm just saying as a broad brushstroke, the past generation of Christians who said, hey, you know what, there's this cultural shift in ideas and values happening, and we need to engage in a culture war to preserve our past. I think I think in some ways it failed because it failed on a level of being able to actually see how Christ was at work in culture. And and there is something that can happen as people look at these cultural stories that we see in pop culture, and they walk out of something like, you know, Thor Ragnarok, and they go, ah, I see what that is. You know, that's postmodernism, that's Marxism, that's you know, this wokeism thing that's happening, and I'm going to reject it. There is nothing bad about my (laughs) culture's past. We did everything right. I don't need to come to grips with that. That is, uh, that sort of dichotomy, it totally misses the mark. And I think that's a lot of what happened during the culture war. Many Christians doubled down and they said, hey, you know, we see these shifts happening in ideas and values, and we have to preserve a past. We have to preserve a past that never really existed, a past in which America was this Christian nation, this, this ideal, you know, Andy and Mayberry world. I, it didn't exist. The past wasn't all that good for a whole lot of people. So I think it failed on that level to see that there were things happening within, you know, these means of communication, music, the arts in particular, you know, the very anti, um, the anti-movies, anti-secular music fad that happened in the 80s and 90s. It did miss out on a lot of the things that were being said in those uh, cultural stories that that actually could have been prophetic insights for the church to say, hey, you know, we've got stuff we do need to address and change. There's that component of it. The strategy of culture war, though, ultimately and completely failed. And I'd say even made matters worse. We can actually see this statistically. We can see that the children of the culture war generation are the least likely in recent American history for, for which Barna Pew Research has been doing this study on for, uh, for Pew Research. It's been since the 1970s. They are the least Christian of any prior generation. So I think the culture war thing failed. It objectively failed in its goal, which was preserving some past and having kids maintain those same values didn't work. 
Now, some in my generation reacting against culture war, they've just allowed their guiding story instead to be assimilated by Babylon. So they've moved into the Christ of culture. And if you're not familiar with those terms, Christ against culture, Christ of culture, you can go back to the Christ and culture series and do a dive into that. They've just been assimilated. They think, you know, Jesus is whatever the cultural values of the day are. And because in many of our institutions, and even Christian institutions, there has not been necessary philosophical, theological training. Our churches have promoted this, you know, um, this extreme pietism, which is like, all you need to do is just have a Bible study with your friends and everything's going to be set right. That, that attitude has actually, it's kept, it has kept people from in their reaction against the Christ against culture to see that they are being assimilated by the values of Babylon. I think there's a third way. I think it's a hard, a difficult way, but I think there's a third way between assimilation, between cultural assimilation and culture war. This difficult third way could be called the way of the exile. And here's some of the principles of this exile way. And I'd, I'd recommend to you guys the Bible Project. Uh, they do great work over at the Bible Project. They've got a great introductory video. I will link it in the description of this podcast um, to this uh, biblical theme of exile, this thematic idea. But the way of the exile is the way of people, the, the, the people of God, when they recognize they are in captivity, that they recognize they are in a world that is both theirs, but not completely theirs at the same time. When they recognize they are in a culture that has a guiding story where they need to hang on to the story that God has given them and yet also see how God might be working in that cultural story. So here's some guiding principles of the, you know, the exile way. The exile way is anchored in the guiding story of the way of Jesus. The, the exile way is culturally competent enough to translate those values, the values of the Jesus way into new cultural contexts. The way the exile is marked by trusting that God is progressing the story, uh, the story of human history to its good end, but aware that not, not, not all new ideas and values in my culture are aimed towards that good end. So it, you could say it's both conservative and progressive while being neither of those things either. It's conservative in the sense that we receive the wisdom of the past, but it's progressive. And again, not politically, not, but there, there are glimpses of the truth in that, that progressive impulse to move humanity towards something. The, the thing that the way of the exile gets right, this, this idea is that God is actually doing something in history and is progressing the story somewhere. That is very different than the progressivist impulse in our American culture to see what's good, true, and beautiful as anything that's away from the past. The way of the exile is not just some sort of abstract 
you know, theological, philosophical concept where all we need to do is gain the right information. We'll have things all figured out. No, it also deeply recognizes the necessity of spiritual and personal formation and that we must grow in spiritual, emotional, and mental wholeness so that our heart is constantly being recalibrated towards the good. It's a narrow way. It's hard. I'm telling you, there's rejection on all sides. Conservatives will think you're progressive. Progressives will think you're conservative. You won't fit in either of those teams. You won't have a political home. You will struggle, I think, in many ways to even find church homes. So much... So many of our church experiences in America right now are marked by these dividing lines of the Christ against culture church or the Christ of culture church. It's very difficult to to live in this third way. It's a lot more nuanced. It's harder work. It's much easier just to pick one of these polemic sides. It's a much simpler explanation of the world, but the world isn't simple and the way of Jesus isn't simple. We're in a revolutionary idea era, and the revolutionary activity of civil unrest has been brewing for quite some time. It's not just recently. It's not just what happened down the street from me with protests and looting and rioting here in Minneapolis. Even just in recent history, we could go back, we could see over the past couple of decades, the Tea Party movement, Occupy Wall Street, the Make America Great Again, Trumpism, the Antifa-style Marxism. We've got the technocratic critical theory revolutionism of, you know, Twitter elites and Google elites. We have woke religiosity. We've got do-it-yourself spiritualities. Gosh, I'm just so amazed. I see Christians, people that I, I, I know who spent time in the church and they get hurt for various reasons. Some of them are very true reasons to be hurt. And they go out and they jump into like using tarot cards and horoscopes. Like what? Guys, what what are you doing? (laughs) You've got the intellectual dark web movement. You've got the QAnon cult. You got, you know, what's going on with the reaction against woke religiosity with the sort of natural law and Western civ civilization apologists. There's a lot brewing here in America in just the past 15 to 20 years. There's a lot. We are in a revolutionary idea era. And the, the energy, the revolutionary energy is, is only brewing stronger and stronger because of the changes in mass communication we're experiencing. And we're moving away from even, I mean, it was a huge, I mean, golly, and uh, insane. To, people in the past would have, not been able to even conceive of the change from the movable type printing press to say something like basic television in the 1950s and 60s where you had five, maybe four or five channels, right? And the change from that, the, what we might, we call today is like the old school communication and media into what we have now where everybody has a possibility for a platform and a voice. You've got a million different centers of ideas and information that you can access. And so it's like you might have had it in the past where it seemed like what was accessible to people might have been, you know, a battle of five or six different gods (laughs) and different guiding stories. But now there's like millions of different guiding stories at like a click of your mouse away or, a you know, a 
scroll through on your your social media feed away, there's so much brewing. The one of the number one things I hear from people these days is, and I feel this way too. How many times have you heard of the past few months? Whether it's even just talking about the COVID pandemic, you've heard people go. I don't even know what to believe, right? How many times have you just heard that in passing? Well, who knows? Who knows what to believe, right? We've got more access to information than we've ever had before. We've got more centers of information. And so the dissemination of ideas is happening at a rate I don't know if we can keep up with. It's, it's insane. It's such a quantum leap from anything we've experienced in the past. And I truly believe we're going through a historical balance of global power shifting level stuff that I, I think is happening and could happen in our lifetime. I don't know what that is, but I've read the history books before and I'm seeing what's happening. I'm seeing these changes in techno technology, which are changing the way people have access to information. And I'm seeing there are all these new centers of ideas. It's not just we got you know, here's this philosopher at this academic institution. We've got this YouTuber, right? We've got this podcaster, you know, instead of uh, you in the past, it was like you'd go through an institution to learn the ideas that happened in an ivory tower. But today you've got Oprah and Joe Rogan, you know, this is a very difficult and different time that we're living through, and there are historical balance of global power shifting level events, that's a run-on sentence perhaps, that I think might be coming in our lifetime. And my encouragement to all of you is to do, I think, what you're doing now, what I'm doing now. It's growing in our theological and philosophical competency to grow right now and to prepare your church communities, your friends, your neighbors, into communities that can thrive in exile. Thanks for listening to today's episode. This, today's episode is brought to you ad-free by the members of the Deep Talks Patreon community. People like BJ, Carolyn, Eli, Josie, Luke H, Michael H, uh, Paul S, Paul R, Sarah R, Sean C, Stephen M, Tim K, those are the, those of you that are giving at that theo theology two hundred one level. Thank you so much. Thank you to all of the rest of you in the Deep Talks Patreon community. Even those of you that are giving it just two bucks a month, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. This summer we've been shooting for a goal of getting to three hundred patrons that could support weekly episodes of this podcast and can support the free theological and philosophical education I'm trying to provide. For those that are supporting, you get access to a bunch of other bonus things uh, we've been going through for those at the um, $7 a month or more level. We've been going through a Get to Know Your Neighbors religion series, doing some, some work to just try to understand the different religious traditions that, there are, that exist in the world and to help us be able to have more competent, caring, loving conversation with our neighbors who might come from different religious traditions and backgrounds. Uh, there's also been bonus Q&A episodes, uh, all, all sorts of stuff for those of you that want to support this work that I'm doing. Thank you for support. 
If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can certainly get involved in the Detox Patreon community. If you wanted to even just give like a one-time donation, it was like, hey, thanks for the stuff I've learned today. You can feel free to do that. And there's a link where you can support me directly if you want to just give like a one-time, hey, dude, thanks for the episode. I loved it. That's awesome. Great. But you can also um, lend your support by just leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, just this helps other people discover it, get, let them know what they're getting into. A lot of people might be searching for something like this, but they don't know that it exists. So those are ways you can help out. I also encourage you, I love hearing from you after each of these episodes. So we have a discussion group that happens uh, on Patreon. So you could certainly leave feedback there. But you could also reach out to me on Twitter. I leave uh, that's at Paul Amleitner. And uh, reach out to me with questions, differences of opinion, objections, things you learned, things that you go, eh, I don't know if I see it that way. I love all of it. I just want to have meaningful conversation to go through this together and that we can, we can all grow together in the process of dialogue. So thanks for listening today. Uh, I think next week, hopefully next week, we'll, I'll be ready for the uh, next part uh, in our Problem of Evil series. So until then, thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon.